show the significance of this song will be explained to you in just a second here it's a magazine style show as we often do on mondays in the second segment we're going to talk about the impact that covid is still having on athletes and on franchises you probably heard about the uh, olympic alternate uh, on the gymnastics team today testing positive but within the world of the two basketballs the three bases balls the footballs all of those balls uh, it is actually um it's a challenge, and teams are struggling to figure out how to deal with it. Uh, towards the end of the show today, we're going to talk to Wally Funk. Well, we actually talked to Wally Funk in 2016. Wally Funk is this amazing person with this incredible story. Uh, she was part of this kind of what turned out to be kind of a dummy program uh, for women uh, women to become astronauts. It was sort of a parallel Mercury program, uh, known as the Mercury 13 program. Anyway, we talked to her in 2016. Uh, at that time, I guess she was 76. Uh, and she still wanted to go to space, and she's talked about maybe doing that, and now she's tomorrow, if you're listening live on Monday, tomorrow she's going into space. Anyway, all of that is still to come. But she's not an astronaut, as it was well known here. We do not allow astronauts on this program. And even if she were an astronaut, we recorded the interview in 2016 before we instituted the ban on astro- astronauts. So it's, I think we're safe on any number of levels. But we want to, I want to begin with a really fascinating um, bit of research uh, about a religious trend. So let me just sort of back up for a second and say in 1972, um, there was a book published on research that I think was funded by the National Council of Churches. They already knew in the late 60s that conservative or evangelical churches were growing way faster than so-called mainline Protestant churches. And in fact, the book that was uh, I'm talking about was titled Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. It was written by Dean Kelly. It kind of rocked the world. Uh, of organized religion, or at least organized Protestantism, and was being talked about for years and years still to come. And in fact, the growth part of it continued. It could be argued that in recent years, it's a little bit more of just kind of hanging on to the tremendous advantage that those churches have had. Uh, But the growth has been extreme as a percentage of population. I mean, these kinds of churches have been way, way, way ahead of their more mainline uh, counterparts, mainline meaning like Congregationalists and most Episcopalians and a lot of Methodists and stuff like that. So anyway, 
but something different is happening right now. And there's some research that's beginning to indicate that that advantage may not hold, particularly as new generational cohorts come online. Here to tell us more about that is Terry Shoemaker, a lecturer on religious studies and American studies at Arizona State University and the host of the podcast of The Plague Year. Uh, his uh, piece about his work recently appeared on The Conversation, uh, an academic web- website that we like a lot. Uh, Terry Shoemaker, welcome to our show. Colin, thanks so much for having me on. So just sort of numerically, uh, and we should say that the studies don't, don't always speak as well. One, like the big studies, there's something called the GSS, there's the Pew. Uh, but some of the numbers are starting to point to this idea that young evangelicals are not necessarily going to stay on the farm, or if they do stay on the farm, they want the farm to change. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so the, the most recent study, um, I, I guess that's really uh, kind of shaking uh, things up a bit is conducted uh, was conducted by PRRI, Public Religion Research Institute. And their most re- recent study called the 2020 Census of American Religion has actually nothing to do with the American census. Uh, it's just what they titled their report. It's this longitudinal study that really tracks uh, lots and lots of information. But one of the things Uh, There's two things of note, I think, specifically that people are really drawn to right now. And one is the 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 fact that the data indicate that in uh, let me get my numbers right. In 2006, 23 percent of Americans identified as white evangelical. And then this most recent study, uh, only 14 percent. And at the same time, there seems to be a direct, uh, an inverse kind of correlation between the people kind of unaffiliating, disaffiliating, leaving religion behind altogether. Yeah, the the so-called nuns, not the Mm -hmm. Catholic nuns, but the N-O-N-E nuns, every every single set of numbers I've ever seen indicates consistently agrees about the growth in that sector. And here, I mean, we can sort of see it in the numbers. We can see it uh, in, in news articles. The Southern Baptist Convention is going through something approaching a schism at this point. Um, I mean, Southern Baptist Convention, uh, one of the th- numbers that they, within their group, and that's the largest conservative Christian Protestant group in America, uh, baptisms are down. When the, when the Baptists are not baptizing people anymore, that should actually alarm them quite a bit. And baptisms are like way down within the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. Uh, could be ex- explicable a little bit by COVID, but not entirely by COVID. So y- you've done a lot of research on, uh, on your own on this and also some pretty extensive interviews with uh, some of the people to whom this research pertains. Um, Tell me, just in general, what are you finding? You are finding, particularly among these young white evangelicals, that there's a sense of this isn't exactly what I want to sign up for. Yeah, that's exactly right. So my research began um, in, around 2000, uh, around 2010, and, and uh, I was actually drawn. Um, I, I was doing uh, my graduate part of my graduate work at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And uh, noticed uh, around a July fourth, there there were so many uh, mega churches, really really large white evangelical churches in the region, who were almost uh, conducting these competitive patriotic services around the fourth of July, and that's actually what drew me uh, into this project initially. And as I started kind of interviewing some people about uh, Christian nationalism. Uh, about their patriotism, specifically about soldiers uh, during that time and involvement in their churches. I would interview uh, older people typically, 
And they would explain to me, you know, well, I believe this or this is my stance. But if you want a, a different stance, you should talk to my daughter or my grandson. And so this really got me thinking, you know, what's going on here? They, they're identifying there's a distinction between an older generation and the younger generation of evangelicals. Sometimes these uh, people uh, were still participating in the megachurch, but they held kind of uh, different positions on certain topics. Uh, sometimes they've completely left the church. And so what, what my research was, was really interested at is people who are evangelical, something like evangelical adjacent. And then people who had left the tradition altogether, uh, what were their positions? What were they kind of disaffected with? What were they dissatisfied with? Uh, and over and over in my interviews, which I conducted about 75 formal interviews and lots and lots of informal interviews uh, over almost a decade of research. And what I was discovering was there was quite a bit of difference, very specifically in political distinctions uh, between an older generation and young, younger generation that then really created um, a kind of a, a chasm between the younger generation theologically, because that's how things are framed, and an older generation theologically. And this ranges on all kinds of culture war topics from immigration uh, to kind of political allegiance, uh, abortion. There seems for the younger generation, the people I spoke with, there was some fatigue of just talking about that topic. Um, but things like civil unions, et cetera, uh, they had put those issues to rest in their minds, uh, much to the chagrin of their their older counterparts. I thought just reading coverage of it and being a little bit more aware of it at a granular level, that one of the earliest stresses and strains, particularly among that younger generation, and this would probably go back to around the time of the start of your research, seemed to be around climate change in particular. You know, that you've got a bunch of young people who would like a habitable earth. Uh, for them, for them to be on, <laughs> and so to whatever extent, and, and so evangelical um, churches don't speak quite as monolithically about that. Anyway, you've got this kind of stewardship move, movement, but I would expect that that would be a snapping point for a lot of young evangelicals if, in fact, the issue is not being treated as real within their their congregations. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that's a really, really interesting issue to to kind of hone in on, and then I think you're right thinking about a younger generation if we're talking just sheer self-interest, right, should be more concerned about this than, than the older generation about what the planet's going to look like. Um, and, and I think for, for younger evangelicals, there's, there's a, a, a real, not all, obviously, there's, this is a contested issue in evangelicalism, even amongst younger evangelicals. But there are younger evangelicals who have really, really jumped on this thing called creation care, mm -hmm. uh, stewardship. Uh, and really, really have uh, taken on, I guess, theology, theologized, theologized this, this notion that we ought to be responsible for this planet because God is, their God has given them responsibility for this. Um, much, again, to the chagrin of an older generation that sees environmentalism, climate change as a politicized issue uh, that falls in line with their culture wars. And therefore, this is a liberal issue and we can't take we, we can't participate in this. 
You know, reading your research, I did think back to Dean Kelly in 1972 because the argument that he made that was borne out by his research was that mainline Protestant churches were doing poorly compared to conservative uh, Protestant churches because the religious message of Protestant churches was so much more serious and real. That mainline Protestant yeah. churches thought, you know what, we got we to gotta make these churches uh, um, appetizing to people who don't like churches, you know, don't like religion. So let's sort of right. soften everything up and make everything much more mushy and and then that was actually the opposite of what they should do. And I'm wondering, as I read particularly some of the anecdotal stuff, some of the interviews that you did with uh, with younger evangelicals, it's kind of like a similar mistake is being made, which is people go to church for religion, you know, and, and politics and religion are not the same thing. And to whatever degree they start cutting the religious cloth to fit the political model they subscribe to, it sounds like that's one of the things that's alienating young people who want maybe a purer theological or spiritual experience. That was definitely what some of my interviewees indicated, um, that uh, their their faith communities have become so politicized, they were seeking some sort of, uh, in their minds, the way that they, they would uh, articulate this, some sort of authentic form of Christianity that is quite divorced from any allegiances to political party. Um, to get back to what you're saying with the, the Dean Kelly um, uh, book that was published in the 70s, it's really it, it, it's really interesting you, you bring that work up uh, for, I think, a couple of reasons. Um, it, you know, right when there's kind of a, an exodus of mainliners into evangelical churches or disaffecting completely, uh, this this emerges right when mainliners really started to begin, uh, not that they weren't politically active already, but the 60s really saw many mainliners uh, mm-hmm. participating in uh, Vietnam protests and, and other types of political marches. And, um, and it was at that point that certain uh, white members started defecting. And today we're kind of seeing something very similarly, uh, similar in the sense that um, – it's almost like white evangelicalism is a political movement first and then a theological movement second. Um, and they're so committed to their particular issues and the positions of those issues that they're willing to stake their claims on that and then figure out the theology based on that. Now, many evangelicals would obviously argue me uh, till they were blue in the face on that fact, um, but their commitments to their, to their politics uh, is, is, Almost in my mind, primary, at least that was some of the things that, that I was finding. And there's a younger generation uh, who is trying to take a step back and say, you know, if this evangelical tradition is redeemable, it's going to be redeemable on its religiosity, spirituality, theology, not on its political positions. And so part of the people I interviewed are, are trying to stay inside and trying to be kind of critical loyalists on the, internally and trying to modify things. I don't know how successful they are. Uh, maybe they're holding out until an older generation passes and then going to try to revamp it. I'm not sure. Uh, but you're exactly right. So, you know, it seems also the young, the younger generation is living, they have a different lived experience, and it's a more heterogeneous experience than their elders would have. Even even in parts of the country that are uh, a little less heterogeneous overall. Still, you know, I mean, uh, I'm a baby boomer. I could grow up. I could never, I could go decades without meeting uh, uh, anybody who is transgendered. Uh, you know, gay people for the most part were reluctant to come out. Um 
most communities were way more segregated. There were sort of a lot of ways in which, you know, the experience of young people now, they're just exposed to a lot more, you know? I mean, whether it's something, I mean, you make the point of like yoga, you know, yoga's got a lot of Hindu terms in it that might freak out uh, an older evangelical Christian, but to a younger person, yoga is something you do, you know, for your core, <laughs> your abs or something. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, these younger people, they're just having different experiences and to belong to anything that's openly transphobic or homophobic or, or, or you know, unable to uh, come up with a sort of Jesus-centric position on what, what happens at the border when families are being separated. You can sort of see why that's going to be harder for a younger person who just knows more different kinds of people. Exactly right. I, I, so in scholarship, one of the things we talk about is that in the United States, there tends to be quite a vibrant religious marketplace. And what we mean by this is there's just many, many options for individuals should they decide they want to seek specific spiritual or religious resources. Um, and younger generations through the Internet, through various other means of access, uh, just have available at their fingertips so many different options. And so should they go to a religious community that, you know, their parents have them go to and should that particular religious community take a particular stance on something. There's just other available options. Uh, I can't tell you the number of people specifically, uh, and, and this actually runs the gamut as far as younger and older, of, of individuals who knew someone uh, who came out as, as gay uh, or lesbian or transgender, transsexual, and, and their churches and their religious community, the evangelical community, actually, you know, would come to them and say, well, you can't be around that person anymore because that person is, is deviating from what we think is correct. And therefore, they, they may influence you. And so many of these younger people, you know, just thought, I know this person and I know they're a good person. And so there, there's a, a, a disconnect between what the religious community is telling them and the experiences that they are having at their school, at work, um, what, in some sort of sports league, these people that they know, they know that they're good people and their religious community is suggesting that they're deviant and they just can't reconcile these two things. Um, and so they uh, often end up in support of their friends and uh, really critiquing their religious community and often their parents and grandparents who hold the same position. You know, uh, so much of what kind of drives or at least underpins or justifies an awful lot of very socially and politically conservative positions within the evangelical music movement is what, at a scholarly level, they sometimes call sola scriptura, that you, you rely on scripture as the authority, as the validator or discreditor of anything. But obviously, scripture can be read very, very selectively. And so I actually uh, should say that I attended for a couple of years a progressive evangelical church. I'm not an evangelical. I was there for other reasons. But the church was basically, I mean, first of all, the church was full of LGBTQ people. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and they were, they'd grown up in the evangelical church. 
tradition. There are some songs that they like to hear. They'd gone to Bible camps, and there were like all kinds of things that they were used to, but they couldn't stay in evangelical churches anymore because exactly what you just said. They, the, they were specifically told uh, as congregants, you know, that they were evil or dirty or wrong or defective or flawed or something, you know. And and uh, what what the pastor at that time, she died of ALS in 2016, but what she was talking about a lot was sort of moving away from sola scriptura and more to sort of a recognition of the message of the actual message of Jesus. If you really, you know, kind of dig down on, on what Jesus says, it's hard to justify a transphobic position. It's hard to justify a homophobic position. It's hard to justify, you know, breaking up indigent, uh, refuge-seeking immigrant families at the border. Order. It's hard to do a lot of this stuff because he, he he a doesn't ever say anything about you know about being transphobic or being but but he does mm-hmm. say a lot about being inclusive about being accepting about um, reaching out to the people who are the hardest hit by life the people who are the most disadvantaged and you know those people uh, are are the people you should be doing stuff for so it's kind of like if you you know I mean evangelicalism has always been so much about scripture basis. But if you really move away from Scripture towards Jesus, you get maybe a little bit more of the message that these young evangelicals want. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, one of the things, uh, one of the movements with, and this is, has a little bit of a history uh, of, of kind of what you're talking about, is a movement uh, called Red Letter Christians. Uh, and what this refers to is uh, there used to be Bibles that were printed that anytime Jesus spoke, those were printed in red mm-hmm. uh, compared to the rest of the the text was in, was in black uh, ink, and so that that focusing you know let's let's get a it's not that the whole scripture doesn't have anything to tell us it's that we want to prioritize the teachings of Jesus who we identify as our Savior in these particular instances, um, and so I think that's exactly right trying to focus specifically on uh, what what Jesus says and, and here's another thing I'll add to this which. Uh, for for many of your listeners, I would think that uh, that didn't grow up in evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there 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 may be the question: uh, your sexuality doesn't align with evangelicalism, or you you get a divorce and doesn't align with evangelicalism. So, or just your beliefs don't align anymore. Many people ask me this: Why stay? Why stay in that tradition whatsoever? And 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 and, and, and even try to create something like what you're talking about, some sort of progressive evangelicalism or evangelical left or something else. And one of the things that I've really come in my own research, one of the things I'm really starting to kind of like think through the, this idea is that for the evangelical world, when you, when you grow up in, in the evangelical world, exceptionally insular, exceptionally isolated, uh, church is your life, family is your life, uh, this form of evangelicalism becomes your language. Um, you're taught that uh, if uh, you don't accept these things, if your beliefs don't align, if you're not saved and you don't have this born again experience, you're going to lose your entire social network for eternity. And so to leave evangelicalism for some people, now some people can just depart and go, but for certain people, that's leaving their in, the entirety of their world. And so a lot of the progressive churches, the way I think that they're really forms of rehabilitation for certain people, uh, that they need to continue in that language, they need to continue in that tradition. 
um, because that's kind of what, that's all they know at this point in their lives. And so jumping ship isn't necessarily an option at that moment in their lives. Mm. Okay, we're going to have to stop there. Terry Shoemaker, fascinating research, lecturer on religious studies and American studies at Arizona State University. We'll be talking about the Phoenix Suns in the next segment very briefly. The host of the podcast, uh, Podcast of the Plague Year, uh, and we will be back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season three of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season three of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. So whatever you, uh, wherever you think we are in the story of uh, COVID-19, uh, could be the aftermath, could still be the math. Uh, it, there's no question that it's still having a big impact on the world of sports. I mentioned at the top of the show, obviously, we have news out of the Olympics. The Olympics is completely transformed by the COVID issue. Now the U.S. gymnastics team may face a problem. Um, but, I mean, everywhere. And, you know, every night, every Mets home game, uh, a member of the training crew has to come out and uh, feel Mr. Mets' forehead just to make sure he's not running a fever. Um, that's actually not true. But here to tell us some things that are true, Alex Kirshner is a writer and editor, uh, and he co-hosts the Split Zone Duo podcast and co-writes the Moon Crew newsletter. Alex Kirshner, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So actually, speaking of mascots, the, the Philly fanatic looks like he was constructed to be a super spreader. I mean, his whole face is one big nozzle that would just sort of spray, you know, spray uh, airborne transmission. And the Phillies, mm-hmm. not because of the fanatic, but the Phillies, as you write, are they really having some pretty significant problems right now. Explain what's happening. Well, the Phillies have a relatively small percentage of their clubhouse vaccinated against COVID-19. And they are below one of just a handful of teams, I should say, that are below the 85% vaccination threshold that Major League Baseball has laid out, whereby a team can loosen some restrictions on the way that it lives. 
and also some testing requirements. And it has turned out that this has recently bitten the Phillies. They had a player test positive. A couple of other players go on a contact tracing protocol. So they were also put on the injured list while they were uh, being checked out. I believe that at least some of those players have since been cleared to play. But it has become a competitive disadvantage for a team that is trying to make a comeback in the National League East. And uh, in a lot of cases, the Phillies have been their players have been pretty proudly uh, incorrect, pretty proudly wrong about reasons not to get the vaccine and been, been very public about that. Not only that, but the ones who are vaccinated are trying to blame their injuries and poor performances on the vaccine, as you document. That has happened. Uh, there was a pitcher. This was actually first reported in The Athletic, but there was a pitcher, Brandon Kinsler, who had neck pain during an outing, you know, a pretty common malady for a baseball pitcher and decided that it was the J&J vaccine that had caused that. There was another pitcher who had reportedly alluded Archie Bradley to the vaccine causing oblique issues. Again, that is something that just happens to Major League Baseball pitchers countless times every year. Uh, there was a shortstop who had an elbow problem, D.D. Gregorius, and he blamed the vaccine for that. So it's hard to work with that, I think. And that has been a, a problem that the medical staff for the Phillies, the coaching staff for the Phillies have confronted is that sometimes uh, athletes, just like a lot of people in this country and the world, don't inhabit the same reality as the truth or, or as most people. And in that way, they're sort of a reflection of our broader situation here. Right. So for people who are wondering about this, and, and this is pretty consistently true across professional sports, uh, most mostly I would imagine because of union contracts, you can't just say you have to get vaccinated or you're off the team or you, you have to get vaccinated as a condition of your employment. I mean, that's sort of not happening in professional sports, right? Well, I think that the union contracts are not necessarily the issue here because I think that if union leadership in professional sports wanted to issue a vaccine mandate, they probably would not encounter a ton of resistance from ownership. I mean, th that is this has been an unusual area of almost consensus between what are often two pretty hostile sides to one another with commissioner on one side and, and club owners on another and the players union uh, on the other side. If a players union's leadership decided that they would accede to a vaccine mandate and, and wanted to negotiate that with the league, then in theory, the players would have to do it. And, and leagues have already done this with certain non-unionized uh, parts of their workforces. So I don't think that it would be out of the realm of possibility, but it's a step that the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, and other players unions have not wanted to take so far, probably because it would be pretty fractious within the rank and file of those unions. Right. So what some leagues are doing is kind of <laughs> making the unvaccinated players into sort of social lepers or second-class citizens, right? Like in the NFL, like there's all kinds of things that you can't do that the other players can do if you're not vaccinated. Yeah, it's a mix of kind of carrot and stick where the NFL has, for instance, done something in, in consultation. I think the players' union had to clear this. Uh where they have, have really kind of set up a, a scheme that is designed to make life pretty unfortunate uh, for a player who doesn't get vaccinated. You have, you know, obviously a lot of travel restrictions, testing restrictions. You have to get that cotton swabbed up your nose all the time. If you are not vaccinated, you don't at all uh, if you are vaccinated. But also things like the kinds of commercial shoots that you can go on and the ability to go out to eat on the road and do the kinds of things that 
you know, young men with lots of money who travel a lot for work might like to do. And if you're not vaccinated, you can't. And we'll see how successful those efforts are. I think it's worth noting that from the data we do have, it doesn't seem like these leagues are doing any worse, at least, than the general public. But you might like to see them do better, given all of the eyeballs on these leagues, how high profile they are, that everyone in them has easy access right at their fingertips to a highly qualified medical staff. There shouldn't be much of an excuse for falling prey to sort of vaccine disinformation like we we have very sadly seen a lot of people seem to do. So you'd like to see them be, you know, a shining example. And I'm not sure that that has happened. Right. Just for an example of this, we're going to play. uh, This is a press conference uh, involving players, a specific player named Montez Sweat at defensive end for the Washington football team uh, and the Washington professional football team. Uh, And uh, he's uh, asking, answering some questions about his attitude towards vaccination. I'm a. I probably won't won't get vaccinated until until uh, got more facts and all that type of stuff. But no, I'm not a fan of it at all. What is your hesitation with getting the vaccine? If you don't mind me asking. Well, I mean, I haven't I haven't caught uh, I haven't caught COVID yet, so I don't I don't see me treating a, I don't I don't see me treating COVID until I actually get COVID. All right. So uh, he says uh, he doesn't uh, see himself treating COVID until he actually gets COVID, which raises questions about whether Montez Sweat has been fully briefed on what, how vaccination works, uh, except that we know for a fact that the coach of the Washington football team brought in an epidemiologist, an immunologist specifically, to brief the whole team uh, uh, on vaccination. So Montez Sweat can't even, despite his name, use the steam room because that's one of the things you're not allowed to do uh, if you're not vaccinated. And to me, that does... It, it, you know, as you say, the, the athletes are prey to the same kinds of misinformation or misconceptions maybe that a lot of us have, except that athletes live a very different life. They're kind of together more than most people are with the people that they work with. They travel together. You know, they eat a lot of meals together. Um, so it's kind of interesting uh, that they can't really seem to quite – all get on the same page about this. And and I guess, Alex, it just has to do with underlying things like, you know, how you feel about science and medicine generally. I think so. I, I think that it is easy to lose sight of the fact that athletes really are just people and they are from a broad range of backgrounds and races and genders, though obviously in the NFL, the, these are all men. And they reflect a lot of the same divisions that uh, we have going on everywhere else in America. And that's not to let them off the hook. It's not to say, oh, we are so divided as a country and there's there's two sides to this. You either should get vaccinated against the very dangerous virus or you shouldn't because, of course, there's only one right side of that. But maybe it was an unreasonable expectation if anyone was expecting that this would be a you know, that kind of shining example that I mentioned of an industry that really gets it right. Well, is there any kind of, you kind of deal with this in your piece, but I I, I still have to wonder about this. I mean, there's a way in which all 
organized sports, all professional sports, and to a certain degree, uh, Division One college sports. There's this sense of like who owns the body, right? And there's this long-standing, decades-long question of to what degree uh, are the bodies of athletes exploited by ownership? To what degree? And some of this is infused or overlaid with issues of race and the ways in which bodies of color have been used uh, for commercial purposes, you know, since and before the founding uh, of this country. This kind of sense that you know, is my body my body? Can I take care of it the way that I want to, or do you guys own it so you can put it out on a field and make it do certain things and everybody kind of makes a lot of money. And, and I'm just wondering whether underlying some of this conversation is that kind of an issue. I think this is a kind of isolated thing, honestly. I, I, I think that the NFL is a good example where NFL ownership, NFL's commissioners going back for, for a lot of years now, have certainly tried to get as much of as they can out of players physically, out of their bodies. And they have shown, in a lot of cases, really callous disregard for the long-term health of the game, uh, excuse me, the long-term impact of the game on the health of the players who have played it. This is an area on vaccines where I, I'm not sure I see it that way. Mm-hmm. I think that teams, by and large, seem to want, and the NFL League office seems to, by and large, want – players to do the thing that is healthy for them and that is healthy for just about everyone, certainly for everyone uh, subject to the authorization to use the vaccine. Uh, I think there are different reasons for that. I suspect that the NFL league office certainly wants to be looked at as sort of an uh, altruistic organization that cares about the health and safety of both the players and their communities. I you know, think people can, kind of take that at face value uh, if they want to, if they, if they want to view the NFL that way. But, you know, there are certainly NFL teams that have, have taken a look at the vaccine and decided uh, that this is an opportunity to not only keep players healthy, but to sort of score a public relations win and to be seen as doing the right thing. And they also are competitive. You know, the, the people who own NFL teams do not want to be at a disadvantage if it's week 15 and the quarterback test positive for COVID and is suddenly out of the game. Uh, I think that we have started to see this new frontier in sports where teams and athletes that don't get the shot, as long as testing requirements exist, which it seems like they're going to keep doing for at least sports 2021 seasons, those teams that don't do it are going to be at a disadvantage because you could just lose a significant chunk of your team at any given time. Right. I mean, we've seen this happen a bunch of times. We've seen games. I mean, we saw a Red Sox-Yankees game that didn't happen uh, last Thursday because the Yankees had not even their first kind of breakthrough set of cases uh, of at least positive COVID testing or COVID protocol being uh, triggered. We saw it kind of, you know, in a very high profile way. Chris Paul, who parenthetically, he's the president, I think, of the NBA Players Union and who had said in the past that he did regard a lot of this stuff as a private matter. He didn't think that fans or sports writers or anybody else was entitled to know whether any given player was vaccinated. But he wound up triggering a COVID protocol. I don't think we know yet whether he tested positive or just had a major exposure uh, that warranted it. He's, you know, meanwhile, I mean, his team, the Phoenix Suns, is in the thick uh, of, I think at that point, the Western Conference Championships now is in the middle of the the, um, of the NBA Finals, but for a player like that to miss even two games and then come back maybe a little bit out of rhythm, which I think was the case with Chris Paul, you know, not exactly where he was when he was just tearing up those uh, those uh, same playoffs. 
I mean, that's what you're talking about, right? When you talk about losing a competitive advantage? Completely. An entirely avoidable competitive disadvantage that a team is put at if a player does not get vaccinated and as a result gets tested or, and test positive. It, it's not a perfect line, black and white, because we've seen cases, breakthrough cases in sports. Yes. The New York Yankees have unfortunately had a couple of these where players who are vaccinated have been among those who have tested positive anyway. But my understanding is that the vast, vast majority, if not all of those cases, have been of the asymptomatic variety, which I think is a sign that the vaccines are doing what they're supposed to do. And that if they weren't in a very high profile business where there is testing and public eyeballs on them all the time, that we might not have even known. And, you know, you could debate all kinds of things about what that says about uh, the media environment that we've constructed around pro sports. But it, it is hard to deny that it becomes a lot likelier that you're going to test positive and be removed from competition if you haven't been vaccinated. And part of that is just that you're getting tested more regularly in just about every sport. Right. Even in the case of Chris Paul, I think it was at least put forth that he had been vaccinated. Uh, and, and we don't also know what triggered the COVID protocol. It could have been Jake from State Farm. Maybe he's really positive and they're still doing commercials. Uh, mm -hmm. Any number of possible ways to, to play the blame game. Uh, but yeah, it does seem as though for for sports to successfully navigate this period. I mean, like the NBA did this kind of amazing thing last season where they really they put the playoff-bound teams into this bubble in, in Orlando. I mean, and I mean, you can't ask people to stop living their lives for too long. But that actually worked, right? It worked astonishingly well. I think that it was the kind of the kind of thing that when it was unveiled made a lot of us think like no way is this going to work and it took a ton of money. And players hated it so much so that they pretty much completely disregarded any shot at doing it again. And I think for understandable reasons, if you want to be with your family and want to be able to live some semblance of a normal life. But as far as being able to stage events and uh, keeping COVID out of that highly controlled environment, yes, the NBA bubble was a smashing success that I think a lot of us did not see coming. Absolutely not. Alex Kirshner is a writer and editor, and he co-hosts the Split Zone Duo podcast and writes the uh, co-writes the Moon Crew newsletter. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And uh, because I didn't do it uh, elsewhere in the show, I got to do something that I usually do sort of at the beginning of the final segment, and that is thank the people who work on this show. So, yes, Cat Pastor is there uh, in the studio being the technical producer, making everything happen, making sure we get that Montez Sweat clip on the air because we don't want to miss a chance to have Montez Sweat on our show. Uh, and uh, the uh, producer of this particular episode is Jonathan McPants, and thanks to him. We've got a lot of very interesting uh, shows coming up for you this week. I want to quickly mention, tomorrow, we're going because, in fact, we're kind of a producer short or half a producer short right now, uh, we're occasionally going to do shows where we don't have guests. We just have me taking your calls tomorrow, Tuesday, if you're sort of listening in some time-abstracted context. Uh, tomorrow is going to be one of those shows, Tuesday. And I'm I haven't really quite even decided yet what the overarching theme is, but maybe there will be no overarching theme. It could be ask me anything. It could be we'll decide, but um, we love it when you participate. It's always great to talk to the listeners a little bit more than we typically get to. So be ready for that one. Meanwhile, get ready for someone who really is like right in the sweet spot. As of tomorrow, she'll probably be kind of an astronaut and we wouldn't be able to have her on anymore. Fortunately, we interviewed her many years ago. She's an amazing person with a great story to tell about the so-called Mercury 13 program. Get ready for Wally Funk.
So this is going to be something from our past, and I'm going to explain it to you right now. Back in 2016, August of 2016, one of our producers, Josh Nalea, did a show about kind of the hidden legacy of the women of NASA. This is before the movie Hidden Figures and all that stuff. And we talked to Wally Funk, whom you're about to hear. She was 77 at the time. She's 82 now. You'll hear her talk about how maybe she's going to go into space with Sir Richard Branson. Well, that didn't happen but she wasn't off by much. If you're listening live on Monday, tomorrow on July 20th with Jeff Bezos, she's going to go up as a member of the crew of Blue Origin's new Shepard 4 mission. She'll break the record of John Glenn as the oldest person in space. And you'll also hear Jerry Cobb get mentioned near the top of this interview. I should explain to you, she was another one of these Mercury 13 pilots. She is not an astronaut. We are not violating our rule against having astronauts on the air. Uh, But we are excited to remind you that way back when we were talking to Wally Funk about whether she was ever going to get up there. Wally Funk is an American aviator with over 19,000 flight hours, a member of the Mercury 13 program. We're so excited to have Wally Funk on our show. Welcome to our airwaves. Oh, Colin, thank you very much for having me. So how did you wind up as part of this group? You knew Jerry Cobb. Yes, Jerry and I were good friends because I went to Oklahoma State, and she called and said, hey, do you want to be an astronaut? And I said, yes. She said, so you get a hold of uh, uh, Loveless, and I did, and he said, be there on Monday. So (laughs) my parents drove me down there. I was too young, and they had to sign me in. So I took all the tests, all the three phases, and then I went on in my life, and I went to different organizations where I could get colleges and organizations where I could get more testing, and then I went to Russia three times to test with the cosmonauts. Wow. So um, people who have seen the movie The Right Stuff, uh, they see uh, the male uh, prospective astronauts going through these tests, and I think there's a moment where a lot of them are dropping out, and John Glenn is still going. Terrific, Scott. Doing good. You were probably just getting warmed up, John. Next time I doubt I'd be the one to win. Did you hear that? I don't know about that. We're competing with Arch and Jughead. (laughs) But you outscored John Glenn on these tests, right? (laughs) Yes, uh, I did. Well, it was youth, and also I was only 113 pounds. And probably the test that uh, Loveless really liked the most was that I stayed in the tank with all your senses, all your everything, temperature, everything taken away from you for 10 hours and 13 cents and never moved. Holy moly. Yeah, that was called the dog dip test, right? Yes. And and so I, is that just, were you just a very, very calm person? How did you, I, I couldn't last an hour doing that. How did you stay in there <laughs> well, for 10 hours? I was brought up to be very particular of what I did. I was born in Taos, New Mexico, and my mother told me about the spirit of the Taos Mountain, and that spirit of the Taos Mountain is in me right now, and it has shown me a way of life to do things better, faster, and at 150% better than anybody else could do, and I have lived my life that way, and I am so happy. I have never had an interruption, and... um, the way Martha tells it is great, but I am still going at it. I even I was giving flight instructions this morning, and it was just beautiful being up in the sky. You were giving flight instructions this morning. Would it be rude of me to ask how old you are? 
Yeah, 45. 45, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think your math checks out. You may have done well on the other test, but your, your math's a little shaky there, Wally. So, um, so when you have to explain to someone or, you know, when you're just in a, a picnic and having a conversation with someone and you tell them this story, how do you explain what, I mean, I don't know. It seems to me you'd be a great astronaut. I'd make you an astronaut, uh, you know, right away. So when you have to explain why you didn't get to do this, what do you tell people? Well, I, I actually I do almost one or two lectures still a month mm-hmm. somewhere in the United States. And I start out by saying, what were the tests that I took? How did I do on them? And then I have pictures that show them how uh, everything went. And, uh, of course, Dr. Kilgore was uh, a wonderful doctor, and he... Oh, he saved all of my records. Unfortunately, the records were all destroyed when they made a new um, Loveless Clinic. But um, I have my records, and then the records where I've gone to other places to take all these tests. I have done everything there is to do in in the world of aviation, parachuting, air racing, ballooning, uh, bungees. Uh, I love it all, and I will do it all over again because I want to get up right now since I was uh, was going to go with uh, NASA. I put in three applications, and they said, Wally, we want you. Sally Wright says, we want the girls to come because they took the test so wonderfully. And... Unfortunately, I didn't have an engineering degree, so I was not allowed. But I have gone on with other companies that have made rockets, but the only one that's going to go up is going to be Sir Richard Branson. So I've been with him six years, and I'm hoping that'll happen next year. Oh, that'll be great. Is there any chance you get to be on that rocket when it goes up? Absolutely. So what's the most challenging kind? I mean, you just said that you've been up in the sky under almost every circumstances in every kind of vehicle or conveyance uh, or craft that's imaginable. What's been the most challenging thing for you or the scariest? Have you ever been scared up there that you weren't going to make it back down to Earth? (laughs) No, uh, Colin, I have never been scared of anything in my life. And it's the way that my parents brought me up. If you get hurt, you lick your wounds and you go on. And I was, I've never been afraid. I've never had an accident. I've never had anything with the air that has bothered me in, in, in the air, on the ground, whatever. Uh, I'm a very happy, lucky kid, and I, I do my best. I run further, faster, and want to get up higher. And I, uh, I, I, I was, it was too bad that, we couldn't go on, but I had never been unhappy or upset because we were never allowed. I said, there's going to be a time, always looking forward, giving it at 150% going on. Well, Wally Funk, we have to go, but I'll say it. You should have been an astronaut. Oh, thank you. I wish I were. <laughs> All right. I wish you were, too. Wally Funk, so great to talk to you. I feel braver and better and stronger than I did before I talked to Wally Funk. I also feel comparatively weaker and more cowardly, you know, next to her, but that's I'm used to that kind of thing.